So this paper is, is a section of a longer chapter that will play a role in my final thesis. That, that chapter will be an exegesis of the Declaration of Principle as a whole. This paper will only focus merely on just a few words. My, my thesis as a whole will explore the development, reception, and analysis of the Declaration of Principle, asking whether or not in its current form is it fit for British Baptists in a 21st century context. It is an extremely interesting document that too few find interesting. Yet there is interest growing in many circles of Baptist life. Currently, churches that are re-encountering this document as they go through the process of registering as a CIO. In general, there have always been detractors and proponents of this document, and I find myself doing my thesis in, in either camp on a daily basis. As a document, it's an intriguing experiment which sought to draw together a diverse group of Baptists. And relatively soon after its acceptance in 1873, the New Connection joined the Baptist Union in 1892. The New Connection, of, of course, had refused to associate with the general Baptist over theological differences, but found enough commonality with the Baptist Union to join at that time. Creating a minimalist document enabled this merging to happen. However, it also played a role in other difficulties, namely the downgrade controversy. Yet the Union has remained largely intact ever since, a point which should not be overlooked. While deeply appreciative of the DOP, I'm becoming concerned with the level of vagueness in this document. While a certain level of ambiguity is necessary to hold together a diverse, diverse Union, I believe, as John Cowell states, the basis of our covenanting should be more persuasive and precise. Believing the DOP to be imprecise is not a revolutionary opinion. In a 1964 Bugbee report, it stated the DOP is open to a variety of interpretations at certain points. The certain points certainly are not few or inconsequential, and I want to highlight one of those areas as an example regarding the term his laws. The phrase his laws has its root in the original 1873 DOP, which read, in this union, it is fully recognized that every separate church has liberty to interpret and administer the laws of Christ. In the 1904 revision, it read that our Lord Jesus Christ is the sole and absolute authority in all matters pertaining to faith and practice, as revealed in the Holy Scriptures, and that each church has liberty to interpret and administer his laws. His laws has often been understood to mean that each local church has the liberty to interpret the entirety of the Scriptures. For example, John Colwell, Colwell dislikes the use of his laws because it reinforces naive notions of scripture as a book of rules rather than as a transformative narrative. It appears Colwell sees his laws as synonymous with the scriptures. Such a view has warrant, as seen in the 1967 Baptist and Unity Report. In Britain, Baptist I'm quoting, in Britain, Baptist polity has been of the congregational type with an insistence that in the words of the Baptist Union Constitution, each church has liberty under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to interpret and administer the laws of Christ. Here that document misquotes the, the, the DOP. But as originally asserted in the 17th century, the document continues, this meant that a company of believers covenanting together locally must determine their own doctrines and practices in accordance with their understanding of the New Testament and after seeking the guidance of the, of the Holy Spirit. The authors of Courage to be Baptist, a document earlier uh, spoken about, it makes a similar point. 
It reads, each church has liberty under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to interpret and administer Christ's laws. Therefore, the primary context for hearing and understanding Scripture is the gathered local church. It could be argued that this Baptistic perspective of communal discernment regarding the Scriptures is the intent of the drafters. However, it must be acknowledged that referring to the Scriptures as the laws of Christ or His laws is unusual. This understanding of the local church interpreting the Scriptures as a community and as individuals has often been present throughout Baptist history. In 1888, Joseph Angus, in the light of the downgrade controversy, wrote a theological statement which was adopted by the Baptist Union. This document begins, The following facts and doctrines are commonly believed by churches of the Union. 1. The divine inspiration and authority of the Holy Scripture, as the supreme and sufficient rule of our faith and practice, and the right and duty of individual judgment in the interpretation of it. While not relating to the community, it affirms the right of individual judgment over the interpretation of the scriptures. This would certainly have ramifications on the local church. In the same year, regarding the same controversy, H.B. Murray wrote in the General Baptist magazine, Each church claiming liberty, as the Constitution of the Baptist Union declares, to interpret and administer the laws of Christ, we stand responsible to no counsel and to no creed, but to God and his word. I glory in this liberty. It is a principle that is of the very essence of Christianity. As a body, we should rejoice in our freedom, for it is peculiar to us as a denomination that we have no human creed or confession or faith to which we are compelled to subscribe upon pain of penalty or expulsion. There is a convincing precedent to equate his laws with the entirety of the scriptures as far as the DOP has been received and understood. However, I believe this may not be the intention of the drafters, especially J.H. Shakespeare. Yet it is understandable to do so as it aligns with other Baptistic principles. These principles are highlighted by the Baptist Unity Report quoted as well as the H.B. Murray quote. However, I believe Colwell is correct that this would perpetuate the idea that the scriptures are a book of rules rather than a narrative. Equating the whole of the scriptures with his laws creates this dissonance. I do not believe this to be the original intent of the drafters. Certainly in the 1904 revision, it seems likely that what was meant by the laws of Christ is the same as his laws in the 1873 version. While the 1904 edition was infused with scriptural language, the laws of Christ appears to be the only allusion to scripture in the 1873 constitution. Paul writes in Galatians 6 that bearing one another's burdens was the means to fulfill the law of Christ. While not sharing the exact phrase, the epistle of James makes similar gestures using words such as the royal law or the law of liberty. This law is to love your neighbor as yourself. The phrase, laws of Christ, seems to be rooted within the New Testament writings, specifically revolving around the command to love God and neighbor, made explicit in the teachings of Jesus and the Gospels. Speaking about the laws of Christ is not common in the 21st century. While not common parlance today, referring to the laws of Christ was far more familiar in the 19th century amongst dissenters. The Baptist minister Joseph Tiso published in 1836, Church Discipline, or the longer title, an abstract of the laws of Christ relative to the proper treatment of the members of the Christian church. 
This short book was written to correct church members who had transgressed specific laws of Christ. While the scriptures are intrinsically connected to the laws of Christ, they are not equated to be the same thing. According to Tyso, the New Testament contains all the laws of Christ and therefore affords ample information on the subject. For Tyso, the laws of Christ went beyond loving one's neighbor, but certainly included this. The Congregationist Joseph Turnbull wrote in a book in 1832 simply titled The Laws of Christ. This book provides devotional expositions on his laws. In the preface he wrote, Upon strict examination of the inspired Christian records, it is found that Jesus has authoritatively provided such a code of laws, minute and comprehensive, simple and explicit, pure and spiritual, and holy, like himself, the great exemplar of his own laws. The basis of this code is undoubtedly the law of God given to Moses in Mount Sinai and contracted in the Decalogue. It is indeed more ample and specific, but the moral precisely the same. Both require love as the operating motive, love to God and love to man. In 1884, the influential Congregationalist R.W. Dale published The Laws of Christ for Common Life. Dale summarized his laws to be, Love thy neighbor as thyself, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Whoever would save his life shall lose it, and whoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. Dale was concerned that some were drifting away from concretely following the laws of Christ and instead embracing the moral maxims of the age. Dale saw the laws of Christ as clear commandments which must be obeyed by Christians. While there is an essential connection between the scriptures and the laws of Christ, these authors differentiated between the two. The 1904 overhaul of the DOP structured the three clauses upon the Great Commission found in Matthew 28. Thus, an evangelistic outlook was the organizing principle. The apostles were charged to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything Christ had commanded. The Gospel of Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, many of the commands of Jesus are found within the Sermon of the Mount, but additionally, when asked regarding the greatest commandment, Jesus responded, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The epistles were commissioned in the end of the gospel to instruct new disciples to obey concrete commands of Jesus Christ. As the Great Commission provides the structure of the DOP, we should not, uh, this should not be overlooked in one's interpretation of it. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the epistle of James already referenced uses this phrase, royal law, or the law of liberty, which are fulfilled by loving your neighbor as yourself. The second epistle of John states that the commandment which must be walked in is to love one another. All of this is to say that the New Testament never equates the laws or commands of Christ with the entirety of the scriptures. The laws or commands are always contained within his laws, which every Baptist church needs to interpret and minister, is at least the command to love God and neighbor, which must be made concrete in a local setting to enable a clear understanding of the gospel and a way of future discipleship. This is further demonstrated in older Baptist confessions, the Orthodox Creed, which states, Sanctification is throughout the whole man, yet through the continual supply of strength from Christ, which flows from him to believers by means of the covenant of grace. In evangelical obedience to all the commands of Christ, their king and lawgiver hath commanded them in his word or holy scriptures, which are the only rule. 
the first London Confession states, And although we be distinct in our meetings for conveniency, yet we are in one faith, fellowship, and communion, holding Jesus Christ for our head and lawgiver, under whose rule and government we desire to walk and follow the Lamb wherever, wherever, wheresoever he goeth. The laws given here are not equated with the entirety of the scriptures, but again within them. John Colwell and the authors of Courage to be Baptist and many others who understand the laws of Christ to be synonymous with the entirety of the scriptures is understandable. However, considering the, the biblical language used and historical use of the phrase, it seems unlikely that his laws were to be equated with the entirety of the scriptures by the drafters. Despite such an understanding clearly being a Baptistic principle we hold dearly. If we understand his laws as specific commands, Caldwell's concerns can be dropped as the DOP does not reinforce a naive notion that the scriptures is a book of rules. Instead, the DOP argues that the local church is to seek to interpret and administer concrete commands of Jesus Christ found within the Gospels, as laid out in the Great Commission. This, I believe, is closer to the intent of the drafters. I've shown that this is not uncommon to believe that the DOP acknowledges the liberty of the local church to interpret the entirety of the scriptures. This is understandable as it is a widely held Baptistic conviction, spanning much of our history. Whilst I've already quoted the Courage to be Baptist to be affirming of this position, later in, this doc, later in the document it reads, The Declaration of Principles suggests that we find in scripture his, is his laws. Stephen Holmes, a contributor to that document, wrote elsewhere, We come to the Bible asking how Christ calls us to live, not how he calls us to live in general, abstract terms, not looking for a universal ethic or law, but asking how Christ calls us to live as people where we are. In the situation we face, each congregation will be guided by its participation in wider Baptist and Christian life. Something to Declare, published in 1996 by the principles of the the English Baptist Colleges affirmed this more nuanced approach, writing the laws of Christ evidently refers to the teachings of Christ in the Gospels. Yet the Christ revealed there does not appear to be teaching a new set of rules, but rather pointing his listeners towards the character of God, his Father. Therefore, they argue, we ought then to understand the phrase his laws as something like his purposes and demands on our lives, which it seems would be based upon the teachings in the Gospels. While this is likely closer to the original intent, the authors of Something to Declare still leave this relatively imprecise. It appears that to a 19th century audience, there were specific commands of Jesus Christ that needed to be interpreted. Laws which began with loving God and neighbor, but progressed to more specific commands found elsewhere in the Gospels. Certainly, the entirety of the scriptures is required for a more faithful interpretation and administration of such commands. But I believe we should be careful in not confusing the laws of Christ for the entirety of the scriptures. The liberty to interpret the laws of Christ exists for the mission of the church, inspired by the commands of Christ found within the scriptures. Guided by the Holy Spirit, the local church finds a dynamic authority guiding them to love God and neighbor, making the gospel understandable to those whom they are witnessing and calling to a concrete discipleship. There are other areas that lack clarity within the DOP. However, this seems to be an important one. I believe if we desire to remain united as a union with such a minimalist document, it needs to be far more persuasive and precise in its language. I believe we should start by being precise in our own understanding of the DOP 
which means acknowledging that on this point, it does not, does not say what we often acknowledge it to say. If as a union we discern our unifying document should express this baptistic principle of acknowledging the liberty of the local churches to interpret the entirety of the scriptures, such a statement should do so much more precisely and persuasively than it does now. Perhaps a 21st century revision of is something that we should explore. Thank you. Can I get water? Can I get water? Water. 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 It is a Canadian uh, accent, if, if you're wondering. But uh, Can yes. I jump in with a question? Because I think we've got, we got a minute or two. Yeah, we've got a minute or two. Um, those of us who were around Christine's paper earlier were reminded that in the field of biblical scholarship, what the text originally meant is only part of the story. Yes. Because the reception of the text is also part of that text's story. Yes. And you're taking us back to what the Declaration of Principle originally meant. Yes. And suggesting that that may take us towards a revision of it if it's not quite clear enough. But I just wonder whether the story of that text's reception yeah. is part of the story of the text. And that it's not, you know, there would be, so my, my slightly provocative question is, re, is, is rewriting the Declaration of Principle a little bit like saying, well, let's make scripture a bit more clear? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, think, I think that's... Uh, a very fair point. So what I'm what I'm hoping to do in my final thesis is the first section will look at the original uh, creation of it. The second section would be uh, historical engagement. So the Matthew uh, Michael Taylor situation of, of 1970, where it could therefore be interpreted where it says that Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh. What that could, what the original intent seems to be, was to affirm the divinity of Jesus Christ could be interpreted because of historical usage, that Jesus, God is present or manifest in the life of Jesus like he's manifested in every other human being. So I think historical reception is incredibly important. Yes. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Other questions? Uh, yes. Do you, do you call in questions or do I call? I, yes. You do it. Yes. Right. yes. I do if you don't. Yeah. Yes, I'm just wondering, um, focusing on the... Uh, the preparation principle, as far as the United Kingdom is concerned, in terms of unifying principle, how it works in other parts of the planet? Because perhaps it's just something in England and uh, Scotland and Wales. Yeah, there are. I mean, Baptists have unified in lots of different ways, and so I'll, I'll start by looking at the way I'm looking particularly at British Baptists, um, but the the. Baptist Union of Southern Africa also uses the Declaration of Principle, as well as the Baptist Union of Jamaica. Um, so it is used elsewhere, um, but then lot, lots of other Baptists have, have unified in different ways. Um, me coming from a Canadian context, I, I grew up in the Baptist Fellowship of Western Canada, I think that's what it was called. Um, yeah, w which again was based, based around a Articles of Faith. Uh, uh, so was that? I, I didn't quite hear all the question. I'm not sure if that answered. Yeah, it was just um, in terms of reflecting on our own story. Um, it's also set within part of a bigger story. Hmm. Uh, otherwise, it's the danger of the Victoria Woods joke is that it must be dreadful to speak with an accent. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we, if we're thinking about unifying principles and thinking about what is the basis of the way that we work together, we're not, although we're on an island, we're not an island. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a long history of, of ways how British Baptists have s sought to unify over very long statements like the Second London Confession, 
which is extremely long, uh, to the new connection principles for at least five years from uh, 1770-75. It was just six kind of beliefs from Hebrews, I believe. So there's lots of different ways. And, and again, I'm focusing more particularly on the British story, but yeah. Jeff, is your fear that the Declaration of Principle has almost become scripture itself? Taking on authority beyond scripture. Well, I, I think as as we've talked, as as div- there are, according to, like in in light of what your papers, there is growing divisions within the union, and I think we are trying to find a unity somewhere else. And I think many are trying to find a unity in this document. And as a minimalist document, I don't think it's robust enough to hold the union together. And I think. My hope is maybe more precise and persuasive language could do that. Is that? Yeah, it's interesting, but it has held us together since 1891. And it's weathered quite a few storms in that period. And quite a few opportunities, I guess, and quite a few calls to revise it. Yes. But they've been resisted, as in that this is enough. Yeah. There is Trinitarian doctrine in here. There is, you know... Uh, uh, I don't think there is. The second clause, baptizing the name of the... Which is a quote from Matthew, which is only afterwards from, from the gospel, kind of infused with with Trinitarian language. So, or, or, yeah, I mean, I would want I would want to believe that, but but I think the history of the Declaration of Principle shows that it can be used to expound almost any view to a certain degree. There, there's what was once thought to be affirming of the divinity of Jesus at one point in history was thought. To not say that. I don't think you could argue for the divinity of the spirit from from the Declaration of Principle. You might infer it. Yeah, but it's not that kind of document, is it? Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Take it on. Another question. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks very much, Jeff. Um, From the conversation I'm having with you, it it seems to me that uh, particularly the way that the Baptist Declaration of Principle is appealed to these days is often in a way which might have different presuppositions to um, what it was originally written. For example, when it was originally written, everyone agreed on the authority of scripture, and a lot of people take a very different view of what the authority of scripture is these days. And this whole idea of us being unified, united in our differences, I, I think I think in many ways that's really great and compelling. But if our unity is only understood as our kind of mutual isolation from one another, what sort of unity is that? Hmm. Uh, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Christine has a question, and then Neil, yeah. and then that's probably out of time. I mean, just following on from some of the discussion that's been had already. I, uh, so thank you for your paper, yeah. by the way. It was no, very heartbreaking, and, and one of the questions that occurred to me. Uh, was almost in that aside where you uh, referenced Andy's earlier paper. And I just wondered if you could comment a bit more on your conclusion about rewriting it in the 21st century and making the language more clear. What would the implications of that be then if what you're saying is love of God and love of neighbour in relation to the homosexuality debate? Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean it was reading the, the 2017 or Courage to be Baptist that kind of pushed me in the direction of, of, of the study. And this might be the place where as we try to sit down and say, what is it that unifies us? That might be, com- might be the place where we find unity, maybe. 
uh, and maybe going to the, the first paper by Ruth this morning, it's, it's going to be a slow process, perhaps, of, of dis- discerning. Um, yeah, because, I mean, I could write it in my view, what I, I clearly know to be saying and, and write, and you guys are all wrong in your interpretation. But that, that's what we, can, we all read the Declaration of Principle, if we do read it, and we know what it means until we talk to someone else about what, what we, they, think they, they think it means. So I don't know what it would look like with more precise and persuasive language, but I think we, I think we should try. Thank you. Neil? Just an observation. I, I, I'm wondering what your direction of trouble may be coming to be as some form of statement of faith. So a number of British Baptist churches would have the Declaration of Principle alongside the EA Statement of Faith. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know whether that was something that you were kind of... No. No, I wouldn't be pushing for a statement of faith. I really like the, the minimalist statement. Okay. Um, I, I, I hope it'd be more precise. What I would maybe like to see, which would be slightly more controversial, is for us to, to maintain something like the DOP and adopt the Nicene Creed. But that would be slightly more controversial. On which note? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.